You're listening to On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library. Welcome back to another episode of On the Same Page, a podcast from the Jefferson Madison Regional Library System. I'm EJ, here with my co-host, Abby. That's right, I'm Abby. In today's episode, we have Book Chats and Overbooked, our epic podcast book club. Be sure to keep listening until the end when we'll be sharing what's coming up at each branch of JMRL in the next two weeks. And before we jump into Book Chat, we want to share another way you can get new to you books, puzzles, games, CDs, and other ephemera at the Friends of JMRL Fall Book Sale. It's a great way to support us and all the things at the JMRL Friends of the Library Book Sale make great holiday gifts. Mark your calendars for tomorrow, October 15th through October 23rd. You can find the sale at 300 Albemarle Square Shopping Center from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. each day. Hope to see you there. For this week's book chat, I read Flesh and Blood by N. West Moss. It's a memoir uh, of a woman. She's at middle age and she's dealing with a health problem that's related to her fertility. The name of it doesn't matter, but it moves around from the present time when she's preparing for and dealing with a hysterectomy. That's the solution to her health problem. And it also goes to the past when she's dealing with a series of miscarriages as she tries to start a family with her husband that she married later in life. So it also moves farther into the past as she talks about her own relatives, her mother, her grandmother, as she's thinking about how they are so known to her, but of course soon they become ancestors and family history. But family history feels really important to her because she has no children. She never has a child, so she doesn't have anyone to pass stories on to. She's obviously a writer, so passing on stories is important to her. I thought it was interesting to read from her perspective, the perspective of someone who has no children, about how she perceives the rituals of life lived with children to be. She seems to assume that when you have children, these stories get passed on. But I think it's interesting because when you think about it, how often do these stories really get passed on, honestly, and how reverently are they remembered or are they treasured? All of us, you know, maybe a lot of us don't have kids, but if you are alive, you are someone's child. And so think about it. How many of your own family stories do you remember? Do you pass on? Do you like how important are they to you? So it's interesting how a big thread of her book is that she's worried about her grandmother's stories dying with her because she has no children. All in all, this memoir was it was candid. It was reflective. At times, it was a little bit repetitive and obsessive with this one woman and her one narrow niche health problem. It's kind of one of those memoirs where you get to the end and you think, and maybe I'm alone in this, maybe I'm just more cynical or or mean, mean spirited, but sometimes you get to the end of a book and you think, is this person's story, or you get to the end of a memoir and you think, is this person's story book worthy? And that's a controversial question. Like, is everyone's life story worthy of being told in a book? I don't know. So 
you may have thoughts or feelings about that. I think it's become especially more talked about and interesting as more and more people are self-publishing. But it's up for discussion. If you'd like to discuss this book with me, of course, get in touch at podcast at jmrl.org. Okay, so this week for my book chat, I read This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub, which we have talked about on the pod before. We have given lots of read-alikes for it because there is still a long holds list. So I will try to give a good impression without giving too much away and just give my general thoughts. So basically, a synopsis that most people know of this book is that Alice's life isn't terrible. It's fine. She likes her job. Um, She likes her apartment, her romantic status, her independence, and she has a lifelong best friend who is really great to her. It's the eve of her 40th birthday, and her father is sick. That's pretty much the only thing not going her way at the beginning of the book. And the next morning after her 40th birthday celebrations, she wakes up in 1996 in her 16-year-old body on her 16th birthday. So I guess she's turning 16 that day. It's pretty interesting because it had big like 13 going on 30 vibes. Uh, If you've seen that movie, then this will be an easy like set up an easy grab to get get on the holds list and to read this book um, or to listen to it like I did. There's a lot of stuff when Alice wakes up that shocks her, not necessarily her being in a 16 year old body. She actually reconciles with that pretty quickly, which is pretty funny. What really shocks her more is the stuff she sees. So it's her dad, how charming and young and healthy he is. And he's like 40 something at this time when she's 16. And she has this whole day basically on her 16th birthday where she remembers exactly what happened on her 16th birthday. It did not go as planned when she was actually 16 And so this first time when she time travels back, she wants to change the day, but also keep the day the same because she has all of these theories about how the time travel works. Because of course, her father is a novelist. His name is Leonard. And he wrote this story called The Time Brothers, which the whole time I was listening to it, I was thinking it was like, a Doctor Who-esque type of fandom base. Like lots of people follow it. People dress up as the characters and go to conventions and cons and all sorts. So it's very much a popular book. It had a TV show made. So she had some notoriety from her father for this book. And she had some idea of how time travel worked as well from this book and listening to her father's, you know, other author friends as well. So... The time jumping is interesting. There's definitely a mechanic that they build inside the book, which I won't spoil because it's pretty interesting. But what I will focus on is how Alice handles what she wants to do when she is time jumping. So she wants to try to fix her father. Her father is sick. When she goes back, she 
figures out that she can potentially change the future, her future, and her father's future by her actions on her 16th birthday. So she goes through a lot of motions and changing things and trying new things, like trying to get him to stop smoking, trying to get him to eat better, trying to get him to remarry, which he never does in her you know, initial life. Ultimately, what I learned from this book, and without giving too much of the plot and the story and everything away, because it is a great read, really life is a collection of moments and it is what you make it. Your life can be the moments you remember. Your life can be the moments you don't remember, but it's about creating those moments with who you want to create those moments with. Not who someone says that you should create a moment with, not whatever, not what society thinks you should do, but what you yourself wants to do, who you want to be with, who your moments are. And so that's kind of the parable that I got out of the story was life can be difficult, but it can also be quite wonderful when reflecting on certain moments. So it's also an eloquy of the relationship between a daughter and her father and how meaningful that can be and how your parents really want what's best for you, even if you don't fully understand sometimes their actions when you are a child. But looking back on their actions when you're an adult, some things make more sense. So I definitely recommend the book. It is sad and and heart-wrenching, but also beautiful and wonderfully written. And there's a great friendship in it and wonderful moments for Alice who learned a lot throughout the book and ends up at the end of the book being really happy with herself. And I don't think that's a spoiler at all. So that's where I'll end it. I can't believe we are so close to finishing our first overbooked title. This has been my favorite season of the podcast because it's been so fun dissecting chapters every episode And I have a feeling you have an idea for our next overbooked pick. Oh, Abby, you do know me so well. I do have an idea based on a conversation we had a while ago. You know that Jamarelle has these amazing book club kits that allow any group to have their own book club. So I thought we should read one of those for our next title. That way, if we do have any of our dear listeners who want to participate with us, it's just that much easier. That's right. You are so smart, EJ. All you have to do is check out a book club kit and you will have 10 copies of this book that you can pass out to all your friends. So maybe we should fill our listeners in on what Overbooked is just in case they missed it. Another great idea. All right, listeners, in case you missed it, Overbooked is the On the Same Page podcast book club. We launched Overbooked in the spring of 2022 to gear up for Summer Reading Club. Our first book was The Glass Ocean by Beatrice Williams, Karen White, and Lauren Wilk. We are nearly finished with our discussion and review of that title and are having so much fun, we can't wait to do it all over again. We really are having a lot of fun with the first season of Overbooked. 
but what is our next title? Okay, okay. How about All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar? Published in 2014, it remains one of the most popular books on our shelves. It is proclaimed as one of the best books of 2014 and even won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2015. And that's just a sampling of the critical and commercial success this book set in France during World War II has had. I am so excited to share this reading journey with our listeners. It's going to be a super different title from The Glass Ocean, so something completely new. You can read along with us starting November 18th. Keep an eye out and an ear out for our special episode debuting our new season of Overbooked. We hope you'll enjoy our new season of Overbooked. And now, back to the show. All right, listeners, you know what time it is. It's overbooked time. Today, we're discussing chapters 22 through 24 of our book club pick, The Glass Ocean. Okay, here we are jumping into overbooked. Chapter 22. We are five miles west of Stonehenge. I think they gave us that as a directional in the car, maybe, because picks up in the car. So Sarah is leaving the folly the great house that John is at to go with Rupert to the National Archives to view Robert's father's papers. (laughs) And John doesn't go with them because he's sleeping. Now, there is some interesting note writing that happens in this chapter. Sarah writes a note to John when Rupert and her leave in the morning. She didn't want to wake John to take him with them because he looked too peaceful sleeping. That's what Sarah said. I have an issue with it. Seems a little strange that you would come all the way to England to do this research. And then with the person that you have kind of become a research partner with, you just decide to let him sleep. So I think that Sarah at this point is letting her personal romantic feelings for John, which they did kiss the last chapter. So I get it. Get in the way of her research, essentially. But... I digress. Anyway, the authors use this as a way for Rupert and Sarah to be able to talk about John without John being there or the fear of John interrupting them or anything like that. So they use the car ride to basically talk about Sarah or not Sarah's feelings. There's this whole game that Rupert is playing with Sarah like, oh, who's texting you? Is it John? Oh, no, it's not John. And she's staring out the window. She's not responding to him. She's just kind of confused. And she just keeps thinking about kissing him. Like, and what they did. Which was just kissing, by the way. They didn't even do anything else. So she's in a blunder because of a kiss. And it's important that she's focused when they're going to the National Archives. So I need her to get focused here. (laughs) They get to the National Archives. They meet Priscilla. Rupert's friend, who is going to show them and let them use her office, show them the papers, let them use her office, all that stuff. So what do they find? Really a whole lot of nothing in the papers, which is kind of the point. They miss, right, a whole chunk of papers. So for April of 1915, there is not one single paper that Peregrine ever Sent, signed, anything. They're missing in a whole bunch of stuff. So that's a whole question mark there. 
There's also this whole plot point with one of Robert's books that he writes that Sarah's trying to remember the title of. Did you want to jump in, Abby? Sure. I have a few points to talk about first things first. And one is related to the, the car ride. First of all, why is she getting a text from the grad student friend, the ex-lover? I mean, I thought that we had been through that chapters ago. It's just a distraction. It doesn't add anything. Honestly, if we get to the end of this book and there's nothing that goes on with this guy, I'm going to be like, what the heck? What a waste of space. I'm sorry, but the book is just like it's getting to the point where we're trying to get to the end here, you know, and I just I can't. I don't understand what the deal is with these random tidbits, random characters that we have no interest in. Why are they even coming up? Um, my second thought is I thought it was interesting as she was talking to Rupert in the car and they were talking about Robert's uh, life. They were talking about Robert's life, a.k.a. because John or Robert is John's grandfather. So they're kind of talking about his life. Makes sense. He's the ancestor here. And Sarah said, oh, yeah, John told me they fell in love on board the ship. They're talking about his family history. This struck me especially because as I was just talking about in my book chat about how family history gets mangled, misremembered, kind of glossed over, it's shallower than is real. I thought that was interesting because at this point, we're almost done with the ship. Like the ship is about to sink. And we haven't seen Robert fall in love with anybody. I mean, he's become close friends with Tess. He's, except now they're in a weird spot, which whatever, we're not in her chapter yet. But they have, you know, an intimacy. He's obviously had romance and love and intimacy with Caroline. But would you say that they've fallen in love on the ship? I wouldn't necessarily say so because I think it's a feeling that they've had all along. I mean, Robert had said like, oh, Caroline, like I loved you since you were since we first met when we were 16 or whatever. So it's just interesting because but now, you know, now that there are a few generations removed, what was the story that Robert told? Oh, we fell in love on the ship. Whether that was the story that he ends up telling or whether that's just what's remembered, whether, of course, there's scandal involved, but even they are willing to acknowledge that. Rupert says, oh, yeah, it was scandalous. So anyway, just just a, another random digression and not um, so much about the plot, but just about uh, the writing and how it's revealed. Anyway, on to the father-son spy novel here. Yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't really get too much out of that revelation either. I mean, okay, so we find out that, or through this investigating, we find out that Robert, like, never knew his father was a spy, maybe, until the very end. I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of like, okay, who cares? I don't know. I mean, EJ, weigh in on this. <laughs> Yeah, I I think this is the problem that we're having with we're trying to like get around this chapter because it's so strangely like laid out in this chapter. Sarah's chapter is becoming extremely convoluted with other with Robert information, which it always has been. But now we're getting even more puzzle pieces that we're trying to put in put into the puzzle. So 
we're in chapter 22, and this is the first time, maybe not the first, but a handful of times we have heard about Robert's books and being a spy novelist. Of course, at the beginning of the book, we heard a lot about him being a spy novelist and where he wrote and the folly and all of this and blah, blah, blah. But we had never heard of any plots of his books. We had never heard any titles of his books. We find out in this chapter that Sarah and John had both read Robert's books separately, but we didn't learn until this chapter. Again, I digress because it's so hard to keep track in this chapter of what's going on. Basically, Sarah is in the middle of a conversation with Rupert and Priscilla when all of a sudden she has this epiphany, like basically out of nowhere, that there's a plot of one of Robert's books where the son tries to seduce a married woman whose husband had vital information on the train and the father of the son is also a spy. Does that sound familiar to anyone, perhaps, listener? Could that be perhaps the entire book (laughs) that we have just almost finished reading? I read that and I was like, so Robert wrote The Night Train to Berlin after the Lusitania went down. Why Sarah didn't ask John, like, when it was published or they didn't look up when it was published to see if it was published before or after they went on the boat to see if maybe there might be a connection there because it's not like they didn't know who his father was at this point. They had learned a couple of chapters back that he was ahead of that secret room. So yes, Abby, to answer your question, I do believe that Robert knew his father was a spy. I don't know if they were in cahoots with each other because Rupert says something even more interesting. He says he never believed that Peregrine killed himself because he thought Robert had perished on the ship, which is what we had been led to believe this whole time. Rupert thinks that Peregrine killed himself because he had information, because he was a spy, that Robert had portrayed his country and that's why he killed himself. Okay, brand new information there. I think, too, another reason why this chapter is like, okay, I get it. They're dropping more breadcrumbs. They're dropping more aha moments like, ooh, interesting, you know, oh, cool. But why I didn't really care or get as much into it is because I don't care at all about Robert's father. I don't care about Peregrine. He's not been a character to me that I care about. So and and so far, it's not yet clear it's not it's super clear to me how this is going to affect Robert and he's the only one I care about gotta love Robert that's true Abby we haven't heard much about Peregrine but we did hear a lot of drama between Robert and his father in Tess's earlier chapters when Robert really opens up to Tess so we have a little information about Peregrine but he's a secondary character I think he does affect Robert's actions purely because he's his father but this chapter is the shortest chapter of the chapters we're discussing, and we've gone pretty long with it. So I'm just going to leave it here with what actually is about to happen. John tells Sarah that they are have been so remiss with the telegram that they never even opened the envelope. It has been sealed since Robert received it on the ship. They were so distracted by the chemical compound code, which turns out to be some metal, some metal that doesn't exist, I don't think, but could have existed, that they never opened the telegram to see. 
what it said. So that's how the chapter ends. It literally ends with John telling Sarah that they hadn't opened the telegram. Another cliffhanger. So we get to wait around for Sarah's chapter. So we're going to go on to Caroline's chapter. Chapter 23. We're in 1915. It's May 6th. Okay. Just take a deep breath before I get into Caroline and her... I don't know, her anguish that is being in love with two people. Basically, it picks up right after the concert was ending. She tries to leave, leaving Marjorie up there all alone. And she tries to go back to where she saw Robert and Gilbert with the telegram. Can't find them, can't find them, can't find them. Marjorie ends up following her. So she sneaks into the gentleman's smoking room so that she can avoid Marjorie and also hopes to find Robert and Gilbert. Doesn't find them there. Instead, she heads to Robert's room because, of course, that makes perfect sense. So she heads to Robert's room. B-38. B-38 Robert's room is listed as. Sound familiar, B-38? Yeah. It's from the very, like, I think from one of the very first chapters. We talked a lot about what is what is the significance of B-38? It's Robert's room. So we finally figured it out how many chapters later. We finally have something there. Yeah, long journey on that one. Knocks on the door. Here's movement in the room. Robert never comes to the door. Suddenly, Patrick is right behind her. Patrick is becoming a very questionable character in my mind. I think something fishy is going on with Patrick, who, by the way, is Sarah's ancestor, who they never talk about. I'm sorry to get angry at you, listeners. But in Sarah's chapters, they have mentioned Patrick Once or twice, they almost never, ever talk about him, which is crazy to me. That's the whole thing that brought her and John together was it being her ancestor and his ancestor. But they never talk about Patrick. It's like they never talk about Bruno's situation over here. They never talk about Patrick. But Caroline runs into Patrick. Patrick says, can I help you with something? Caroline makes up the story and blah, blah, blah. Patrick doesn't need to hear it. Patrick unlocks the door (laughs) and wishes her on her merry way and just leaves and says, oh, if I see Robert, I'll tell him you're waiting for him. Caroline opens the door. Who does she run into? Who's in the room? We know it's Tess. Tess is there. Okay. Do you want to pick up from this? This is where really the action starts. Yeah. Caroline's chapter, it was like a slow motion chase scene. She's moving through these forbidden spaces Everyone's sneaking up on her and cornering her, talking to her in codes. It's just interesting. But we find Tess and Caroline is jealous of her because Tess is in Robert's room and she notices that Tess is quite pretty and she's thinking about, you know, how she likes Robert. Caroline's got so many people on the ship that are either in love with her, love her so much and would do anything for her. But she can't seem to love herself. That's how I feel like Caroline is right now. She's very confused at this moment. But anyway, yes. So we'll go back to Tess leaving. Tess basically leaves. Caroline just lets her go. (laughs) And she leaves. And Tess says, be kind to him. That's her words. And I thought that was a neat phrase there, too, because who is the him? She's giving Robert to Caroline which I'm interested to hear how this plays into your theory because you've always been like, okay, Robert's going to end up with Tess. But when I read it, of course, I'm constantly thinking what's kind of twisty about this. And I thought it was neat that they used the pronoun him, which him, 
maybe because of course in my mind I'm reading it and thinking maybe Tess is saying be kind to him like Gilbert I don't I mean I know it's just dumb but it's just a way of of reading it anyway (laughs) so Robert ends up spilling the beans to Caroline about being a spy and having Tess there as a prisoner which another hilarious choice of words why is Robert willingly saying I have a prisoner why would you say that to someone why would you say I have a prisoner in my room who I have taken as a prisoner why would anyone who has a brain do that he really does he tells her everything that he's on a mission the whole thing was a mission caroline gets a little upset about that i was proud of caroline for about 2.5 seconds in this scene because she stepped back when he said that he was a spy and then about a about mm, a page and a half later they were sleeping together and then the craziest stuff happens with Jones, who Abby has always had her eye on. She always thought Jones was there's something going on with Jones. So let's talk about Jones, Abby. Okay, yes. And now I remember what's happening with Jones. So Jones is waiting in the room and then says, I have to get the waltz to Patrick because I have to get it to Gilbert. It's a very clean, orderly story. She says, you know, they came and said they needed the waltz. So Caroline goes and gets the waltz. Go ahead, whatever. But this is the moment where she's totally lying, I think. She is also a spy, also trying to get a hold of this waltz. Because as we recall, a lot of people think that the waltz is meaningful, even though we know it's not. She's unaware that the manuscript is fake and she's lying. Whoa, Jones, crazy. And next chapter, there's more Jones stuff. Chapter 24. So Tess is now suspicious of Patrick. EJ was just talking about in Caroline's chapter how we grew more suspicious of him, how he's popping up. All of a sudden, he's popping up everywhere, just like Robert used to do. And now Patrick is popping up everywhere. We've always been a little suspicious of Patrick. And Tess is just now figuring out it is figuring it out as well. The fact that he has access to everyone, everything, all these telegrams, et cetera, et cetera. It's very sweet when Patrick talks about his family with Tess. EJ was just saying how we don't get any information about Patrick from Sarah's point of view. And it's true. I was feeling that way too. So the authors must have known that we wanted a little bit of Patrick. So Patrick was able to tell us about his wife and his five kids, almost six. His wife is expecting seemed very genuine to me seemed very sincere it almost made me think that maybe he's not a spy that he's just like a hard-working dude so I don't know if you agree EJ I did have that thought that I was like oh maybe he's just a really nice guy and maybe he just works for Robert you know and Robert is like paying him extra to like take care of his friends on the ship you know Tess and Caroline and such but I knocked on that a little bit when Tess runs into Patrick and they're talking and they're walking. Basically, Patrick is taking Tess back to her cabin in second class, right? Tess mentions that it's strange that a first class steward would know where second class cabins are or even know specifically which cabin Tess was in, which Patrick did know. So Tess did knock on that a little bit, added to the suspicion, to my suspicion of Patrick as well. Either he is working with 
Jones to try to get the manuscript. Or Patrick is really just being used by everybody, all the characters on the ship, to just do his, their bidding, <laughs> essentially. And he's just kind of around. You know how I really loved Nellie and Mary-Kate, Tess's roommates or cabin mates from Tess's first couple of chapters? Well, they're back. It's been so long. I feel like we've been on the ship for so long. And Tess has spent very little time in her cabin. So, But they're back. When Patrick leaves after dropping Tess off, Mary-Kate says something extremely interesting to me. She said that, oh, Tess, you must be really special getting the help of a first-class steward. And Tess goes, how do you know that he's a first-class steward? And Mary-Kate says, oh, you know, my Liam knows one of the first-class stewards. First of all, we don't know who Liam is, but he also knew who the Germans, that the Germans were in the brig. We did know that as well from Liam through Mary-Kate. We've never met Liam. Mary-Kate says that he is someone she's supposed to marry. That's what she says at the very beginning. I'm like, is Liam like Robert? You know what I mean? Like, is he like posing as someone else? Like, I was trying to come up with anything that I could <laughs> to like explain why the authors thought it necessary to throw in another Liam line about the first class steward. So maybe that will come back later. Who knows? Anyway. Next morning, Tess wakes up in the middle of the day. She goes looking for Ginny and she's walking towards Ginny's room and she walks past the Hockstetter's room. And again, an important detail here. <laughs> The authors say, as Tess walks past the Hockstetter's rooms and the room reserved for the Hockstetter maid, weird, we'd never gotten that detail before, and makes her way to Ginny's room. It's just a strange detail that I knocked on a little bit. It was really weird. So as she gets to Ginny's room, she overhears a very comforting voice that we all love. <laughs> it's Marjorie, Marjorie Schuyler. She's in on this. <laughs> Marjorie Schuyler is like berating Jenny about the music. So Marjorie is very much involved and very much wants the Germans to win and is not afraid to say so. I was not super surprised to see Marjorie involved because she's been fishy the whole time and annoying, kind of weird and in your face. And then when she had that subtle line of stay here, Caroline, which was last set of chapters, that was an authoritative sit down command that to me spoke volumes. She knew that Caroline was trying to chase after the men. And clearly she's also involved in men's work here, espionage. One thing that I literally just thought of right now as I'm talking is my main kind of complaint about all this is who is Marjorie now reporting to? Who are her people? What I'm just so interested to know how all these pieces fit together, what the hierarchy is. Because, you know, obviously Marjorie is not just a one woman show. This is not, this is like a German operation. So, how does someone like Marjorie even get involved in this? I don't know if we're ever going to learn that stuff about Marjorie, and only because we're there are other pieces missing that we still aren't sure how who is connected to Gilbert and who's on the right side. But of course, we have a couple more chapters. So hopefully there will be some resolution to all of this <laughs> because the ship is going down very soon. OK, now it's time for some breaking news, which is that we find out that Ginny 
is literally Jones. Okay, guys, Jones is Ginny. She is a character that Ginny has been playing. Oh my gosh, this is so crazy. And I loved it. I loved this detail. I loved it. Like so smart of these authors. I just love it when they do interesting things like this. Now, EJ, what I want to know most, mostly, I just want to know you as a reader, you mentioned is Liam Robert. I mean, did that thought pop into your mind before we found out that Ginny was Jones? Because when I found out that Ginny was Jones, I was like, whoa, I never would have thought somebody like making, taking another name. Maybe I don't read enough spy novels, mysteries, murders, whatever. Maybe I don't read enough of this genre, but never would have crossed my mind to have one person assuming two identities, even though it's been laid out for us the entire book. Like Tess and Ginny, this is their livelihood of assuming these different identities. I was suspicious of Jones in Caroline's previous chapter. So the chapter we just talked about when the line said like a voice from the darkness, like startled Caroline and it was Jones that made me wonder if Jones was involved. And we did know that Jones was a new hire. So how Tess didn't know is probably more of my question. But now I'm thinking maybe Tess did know. Maybe Tess knew the whole time who her sister was playing because she saw her a couple of times in different outfits around the ship and around the ship where Caroline wouldn't be. But I didn't think it was Ginny until Tess's chapter. I didn't cross my mind. I knew she was playing people on the ship, but I didn't. I thought people we would never learn about is very clever of it to have been Jones like the whole time and that we had seen Jones so much and we had no we. But maybe that's why we never really got many details about Ginny, because it would have been like too suspicious if we would have known that she had blah, 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 this color eye, this color, blah, blah, blah. Then we would have known that about Jones, too. So, um, yeah, I didn't think it was Jones. But what I do think is interesting is how Tess finds Ginny and realizes it, but she doesn't seem surprised. So that's why I wonder if maybe she knew. And now Tess tells Ginny that she heard everything that she was eavesdropping. She heard every single thing. So she knows what's going on. And Ginny is like, I don't care. Don't trust anybody. She tells her she loves her, pats her on the cheek. And, and then Ginny's gone. And Tess is in pain, a physical pain that she feels that Ginny leaves. And then all of a sudden her world went dark. And that's how the chapter ends. It says, Tess could feel a pain in her head and then the world went dark. I was like, did she get hit with something? Did someone come up behind her and hit her? But I know what happened. I'll leave us with this. What if Ginny is really on Gilbert and Robert's team? She's like, being a double spy. Okay, you could just run this around in circles all day. And we hope you will. Please run around in circles with us. Keep reading along. More overbooked in two weeks. And we're excited to see you. Before we sign off today, here's how you can grow, learn, and connect these next two weeks at JMRL. At Central, we're hosting a spooky paint night for adults on Wednesday, October 26th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. All supplies are provided and you don't need any experience painting to participate. At Crozet, we have not-so-spooky stories and crafts, which will be happening on Saturday, October 29th at both 10 a.m. 
and 2 p.m. for littles aged 3 to 5. At Gordon Avenue, don't miss the Drop-In Teen Hangout on Wednesday, October 19th from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. to hang out, do puzzles, have snacks, read books, make art, and chill. At Green, there will be Lego challenges and freedom to build, free build, with lots of Legos for kids in grades K through 5 on Thursday, October 20th from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. At Louisa, the American Red Cross will be hosting a blood drive on Tuesday, October 18th from 1 to 6 p.m. Registration is required. See the library calendar for details. At Nelson, get ready for Halloween with a screening of the Tim Burton movie Dark Shadows, starring Johnny Depp, on Monday, October 24th from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m., rated PG-13. At Northside, there will be a bilingual story time on Saturday, October 22nd at 10.30 a.m. Stories, songs, and rhymes will be in English and in Spanish. At Scottsville, the Blue Ridge Health District will be hosting a flu and COVID vaccine clinic on Saturday, October 15th from 2 to 4 p.m. First shots and boosters will be administered. All ages welcome. Don't forget to contact branches or visit jmrl.org with any questions or to register for programs. Thank you, listeners, for being a part of this podcast community. We're so happy to have you. We hope you'll join us in taking a moment to thank the Friends of the Library, who generously support this endeavor. If you'd like to learn more or join the Friends, you can head to their website at jmrlfriends.org. That's all for us today. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Don't forget, you can get involved on social media or by emailing us at podcast at jmrl.org. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad to be on the same page. page.